You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the show that uses tales of the paranormal, urban legends, and a little weird fiction to find out exactly why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and this morning I'm coming to you once again from the White Atlantic Weird cabin. Imagine it as a small wooden structure surrounded by trees and secluded, with, of course, a well-stocked library of books on the paranormal, as you'd expect, and one of those globes that opens up to reveal a well-stocked drinks cabinet, also as you might expect. The cabin is hidden somewhere in the forest of deepest, darkest Essex, its porch being a fine place to spend a warm summer morning, watching the forest wake up for the day while sipping on a fine coffee. This morning I'm drinking some Manchu Pichu from the co-op. It's a nice, earthy taste with a hint of chocolate, and it gets my buzz going early in the morning. As I watch the sun rise over the treetops to begin its daily journey, I begin to wonder. There are those who say, you know, that the sun is not in fact a ball of gas and fire burning millions of kilometres away. There are those who say that the planets and the stars are not the physical structures we are taught, moving in their own orbits and patterns, but in fact a constructed artificial light show set up just for the benefit of us here on Earth. And of course, there are those who say that the Earth itself is not a spherical planet, but instead a flat plane, with us at the centre of a very small, deliberately constructed universe, situated beneath a curved dome, somewhat like the inside of a snow globe. Yes, my friends, on this fine sunny morning we are going to tackle the Flat Earth Conspiracy, that seemingly silly but in fact most crucial of all conspiracies, for it attempts to undermine the most basic fact we all take for granted, that the Earth is round. For if we can question this most fundamental of all scientific theories, then perhaps we can throw open the door and cast out on anything, evolution, the age of the Earth, just about anything else science has to say. So you can see it's potentially a game changer. To aid me in this discussion, I'll be having a conversation with man of science, medicine and engineering, Mr. James Lynch. I'm happy to have him back on the show, even if it is through the medium of Skype, as he was unable to visit me at the cabin on this occasion. You will hear our conversation after the intro, so stick around. And remember, the only thing flat earthers have to fear is sphere itself. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, where we believe there's a simple answer to everything, and it's probably wrong. Okay, James, thanks for coming on the show again. Um, Last time we spoke about NASA hoaxes, we spoke about the supposed moon hoax. Um, I've got you on this time to talk about Flat Earth. I think it's a subject that's going to present you with some kind of facepalm moments. Uh, It's the sort of thing uh, probably someone of your thinking might even wonder why are we even spending time on this. But hopefully uh, we'll get into once we get into it and we talk about actually how it's getting kind of big and how, for me at least, it represents some deeper problems with, with people understand or failing to understand science. Um, and hopefully that will, will kind of make clear why I do think sometimes it is worth spending time on these things. Um, firstly, I'll just say, have you come across this yourself in your own life in any way? Do you ever meet people who are into this? 
I have never actually met in real life a flat earther. I know know that I have. Now, I didn't speak to them about it directly. I only found out through a third party. But somebody who we both know, actually, um, from playing music, not not very closely, but um, I found out more recently is into that. And, um, you know, so they're out there and they're around and you might not know it, but there's there's going to be somebody um, around you who's into this. And I'm finding that increasingly about all of these kind of weird fringe topics. You know, you think something is too strange... Or you think it's niche when in fact you probably do know somebody who's into it. Uh, yeah, I suppose. It, I mean, they're out there. They walk among us. <laughs> the um, did a few months ago when the documentary Behind the Curve came out that was on Netflix. I watched that and I watched it again this week just to kind of brush up on things. You did you watch it when it came out at the beginning of the year? Yeah, we watched it fairly fairly soon after it came out. Uh, it was definitely a good watch, definitely entertaining. Yeah, I, I would recommend it. Um, what I liked about it was the documentary makers, they, they they took an interesting approach, I thought. They didn't want to, they weren't out to humiliate anybody and they didn't go out, I, I thought, to make fun of this strange idea. Um, they kind of let the, the believers themselves do that, really, and they kind of uh, give them enough rope <laughs> sort of a scenario. Um, yeah, I thought I thought it was a good look at kind of the the social and the psychological aspect of of these uh, conspiracy theory groups as well. Yeah, and I thought they didn't they didn't demonize the main believers. They they kind of made them out to be quite even though they were kind of annoying or or needy or or what else you might make of them. They didn't like especially the, the it's mostly about this fellow Mark Sargent, uh, and it just it as as infuriating as he was in the, in the documentary, I kind of liked him. You know, and I kind of understood why he was so pleased with with having found um, kind of like a mission for him in his life. But we, I'll talk about a bit more about that as we get into it. Just a few a few basic things about the history of the idea of the Earth being flat. Um, you you often come across this notion, this, this shorthand, in, especially in films and cartoons and stuff, that it's it's like a medieval mindset to believe the Earth was flat. Um, when in fact, pe- we people have known since ancient times. Um, they had a system that was far closer to what we now think is really the case. And one of the key guys who's often referred to is this fellow, I'm probably going to butcher this, I'm no scholar of classical civilization, but a fellow called Eratosthenes, who was the, he seems to have been in charge of the Library of Alexandria in about 2000 BC, give or take some change. Hello, this is post-production key, and that date should be, of course, 200 BC, obviously. And this is the famous experiment, you probably know more about this than I, where he measured the angle of a shadow uh, at two different cities in Egypt, at a place called Syene and in Alexandria, and um, managed to work out, because he knew the the distance uh, between the two towns, and he was able to work out the angle of the shadow, he was able to do some, you know, by then they already had quite sophisticated trigonometry and mathematics, Uh yeah. And he was able. Yeah, his um, his estimated the size of the Earth was pretty close, actually. I was looking today. Yeah, so I mean, I, the numbers escape me, but it was something like he overestimated by about zero point four percent, something like that. Mm, which is amazing, really, considering the the equipment he was using. Yeah. Sticks and shadows. So one of the interesting things I found out was that ever since then, if not before, you know, most of the great civilizations have not really questioned that the earth is a sphere you know the, this notion that in the past you know people largely believed it was flat is 
not really a thing. Certainly amongst people who were who were educated or in the elite, it's more difficult to say, you know, what the what the rank and file people out in the villages might have believed because they didn't they were often illiterate or they didn't leave much written evidence. But certainly the the upper tiers of all the great civilizations, you know, from then until now, have had a conception of the earth as being round. Um one of the major villains in this story seems to have been the American writer Washington Irving, so the guy who wrote Sleepy Hollow and all those stories. And in the early 19th century, he stayed at the Alhambra in, in the south of Spain, which is this fantastic Moorish palace, um, uh, one of the great architectural legacies of, the, of the, the Muslim civilizations of the medieval times in the south of Spain. And when he was there, he wrote a book of stories called Tales from the Alhambra, which is a good read, but in one of the stories he recounts um, the, this kind of imagined version of Christopher Columbus going to um, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella before his famous voyage, and basically he makes out as if they all, everybody thought the world was flat and that Columbus set out, amongst other things, to prove that the Earth was round when, in fact, as we know, um, Columbus was trying to get around the world to get to India and had no idea that there was a new continent in the way. But somehow this fictionalized version of that meeting seems to have really gotten out of hand and by the early 20th century was showing up in American history books and places like that. So I think you can trace this idea that, you know, right up until early modern times, people believed in a flat earth that had to be disproved seems to stem largely from this fictional source, which I thought was interesting. Well, I suppose um, perhaps there's a, a little bit of um, a hubris, I guess, uh, on our part that we like to think that we're so much smarter and more developed now than than uh, back then. Uh, so sometimes to make us feel better about ourselves, we imagine that prior generations uh, had less understanding than they really did. Yeah, and it's just interesting. I mean, they did in certain ways, but it's just interesting how we choose those those moments those kind of politically loaded hysterical moments so you know columbus going to america is is a hugely politically loaded moment and people have kind of impressed their own ideas onto it uh, coming from different places so i suppose as well sometimes um, a fictional account can be more entertaining than a strictly factual one yeah and then and it has some, longer lasting that's how it kind of disseminates down through the the folklore and through the the literature and can become accepted as fact, even if it was never intended to be interpreted as such. So I'll do a quick, uh, a quick and dirty rundown of what the the flat Earth idea is all about. So, um, like I said, it wasn't really taken seriously by any kind of scientific or social <clears throat> norms until relatively recently. There have been outbreaks of this kind of thinking in the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, generally from kind of fringe religious groups and, and, and communes and these kind of weird utopian societies that showed up in Britain and America um, in the 19th century. But the, the more recent recurrence of it, um, it's, it's what they call a broad church. There's no, there's no one uh, way of looking at it because um, there's no single document. You know, it's not like a religious thing where there's a single document, at least on the surface, uh, where one book tells you how it is. So there are lots of different conceptions of it. Um, and because I think the idea itself is inherently not based on evidence, <laughs> the, the, you know what I mean? Everyone is not pointing in the same direction. But one thing they all agree on is the Earth is flat. And what most of them agree on is that what we're looking at is a situation where the 
North Pole is in the middle, and then you've got the continents spread out around that, and then you have the Antarctic is in fact not its own continent, but is a like a wall of ice which is around the edge of this kind of kind of disc, and that nobody has ever gotten past that. So it's like this kind of secret, impenetrable barrier that's, you know, hiding something that we don't know about. And because this really alters almost everything that we know about science, they have got to go further and say then, well, gravity, as science describes it, doesn't work in that way, so obviously gravity must be fake as well. So actually what's going on is this disk is, is being propelled up through space um, at a constantly accelerating rate. And that's why we feel a push down towards the ground. And and it, it just goes on from there. So like almost anything we can come up with that's scientific, they will have some kind of strange answer for. And I will address some of these and see what you think of them. Um, but it's it like it, it demands a conspiracy theory, doesn't it? Because it flies in the face of everything we think we know. Therefore you know, there must have been some vast num group of people maliciously hiding the evidence over centuries and centuries. Yeah, I guess it's a bit like the, that moon landing conspiracy theory, but on a much, much greater scale um, in terms of the amount of people that would need to be in on the conspiracy in order to, uh, to you know, continue to fool the entire population of the world. And of course, um, flat, er flat Earth conspiracy encompasses the the moon hoax because moon, it, because course, it, yeah, yeah. it has to because in this in this worldview you can't if you trust NASA then your your flat <laughs> Earth is disproved straight away obviously because yeah. there's literally photos yeah uh, showing the Earth as a globe taken from the Apollo spacecraft so that because space itself is fake that you then have to you know everything you've ever seen or read about space has to be part of the conspiracy too. Yeah, and I think uh, the best way to kind of debunk uh, these flat earth beliefs um, is to point out observable evidence that we can see here from Earth, uh, because you're never going to persuade one of these believers to change their minds based on any measurements, photography, etc. from space. Because uh, they'll just immediately dismiss that as part of the big conspiracy. Yeah, but if and, it's yeah. something they can see with their own eyes, then you might just get them to to snap out of it. So yeah, it's it's um it's it gets into and we we had discussions about this again on the moon hoax episode and also on the episode with with Donal about uh, post truth. But we're in a situation where we're dealing with stuff that's basically unfalsifiable, where people are literally not looking to. Um, if, if if your idea can't be falsified, then it's it's beyond the realms of science. You know, you're not you're not really operating or debating in good faith. If you if you you know you have to ask these people, well, what would disprove what you believe? And and you have there has to be something, and that goes for us too. You know, we we would have in in order for us to be scientifically genuine, we would have to say, well, yes, there is something that would disprove what we believe, and this is it. You know. Yeah, um, and that's, I suppose that's part of why the, the documentary behind the curve was so interesting because it was kind of the collision of uh, these unfalsifiable beliefs with practical experimentation. Yes. Um, which was uh, very uh, amusing to, to witness, really. Do you remember the scene uh, where one of them, who is an engineer, does this seemingly very expensive experiment where they had a uh, some sort of a device that was supposed to prove... It's a gyroscope, yeah. uh, a very accurate gyroscope. Yeah, and when it, and, uh, do you remember what he was trying? How, how, what he was trying to? 
So in the flat earth model, uh, the earth does not rotate. And to explain the movements of the, the sun, the moon, planets, stars across the sky, uh, they say that it is the sky that is rotating above the earth and the earth is staying still. Uh, so therefore, any gyroscope on earth will not show any deviation. If you set it in motion such that its axis is pointing north-south, it will not move. Uh, however, in the real world, uh, because the Earth is rotating at a rate of about 15 degrees per hour, your gyroscope will hold its true rotation in space, but as the Earth rotates about it, it will show a drift of 15 degrees per hour. Yes. Do you recall that scene in the film then where they're doing this and they don't get the results that they want, so they think, all oh, right, okay, well, we have to do this a bit slightly differently now. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, they blamed it on, I think, magnetic interference. Yes. Uh, so they were coming up with increasingly elaborate ways of shielding this gyroscope from any kind of outside magnetic fields using increasingly exotic and expensive materials. But, uh, but of course, whatever they did, it yielded the same result. But the, their their explanation for what they found, like you said, like magnetic interference, was was quite spurious. That's not based on a measurement of something. That's just it's. It, I think it's. It might be an example of what's called special pleading, where it's like, well, this is not giving us the answer we want. So there must be something, you know, so that you start to invoke these kind of fictional processes and and forms and and energies. Well, of course, I mean, I mean, they're doing science backwards, you know, they're starting with the conclusion <laughs> yeah. and looking for evidence as opposed to looking at the evidence and reaching a conclusion. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's plainly evident right from the start. But what is surprising is the amazing lengths to which they'll go in order to try and make the evidence fit into their worldview. Yeah, it's astonishing. It's, it's like when, when what you find, when the world around you does not seem to confirm what you believe instead of changing your beliefs you try and change the world around you and say well actually it must be like this well some of them are, are, are just so it's not a casual belief for, for these guys that were in the documentary they have invested uh, so much time and effort uh, financially emotionally everything their whole social circle is built up of these fellow believers who go around on this convention circuit uh, they spend their time making YouTube videos etc 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 they're just so fire down that rabbit hole that it is almost impossible for them to climb back out yeah and uh, late in the, in the film where the the host asks this fellow mark Sargent, he says you know what would you accept as as evidence against this and if if you were provided with that would you come out of this world and he kind of said well i couldn't you know my people wouldn't let me and this guy this is a guy who has come to define his whole world by this and i mean one of the things that makes him infuriating as, as someone who's proposing something that he claims is scientific but also makes him kind of endearing is, is just like the, the personal angle in the documentary there at least the way he's portrayed is he's kind of a kind of a schlubby guy isn't he he lives with his mother and he's in his 40s and he he's kind of you'd feel a bit sorry for him in some ways but he's also quite he's quite positive and chipper and kind of he seems like a decent fellow in some ways you know? Yeah, he seems like kind of a, a nice, personable kind of guy yeah. that you could have beer with, and yeah, yeah. you know, he's he's he's, uh, he's enthusiastic. He across as, yeah, and he doesn't come across as mean spirited or no. sarcastic or cynical or anything like that. No, so he's just he's just um, a kind of a guy who was kind of going nowhere, and but now he's found this thing, and it, it he's become the center of this world now. 
Yeah, uh, you know, if space travel ever becomes affordable and accessible, it would be very interesting to send a few of these guys up so they could see it with their own eyes and to see how they might react if they could literally see the Earth as a sphere beneath them. But then, I mean, you, you would, if you're so invested in your belief, you're only going to turn it around and say, well, obviously, you know, NASA have just drugged me and put me in a simulation and, you know... <laughs> There's oh, no, no doubt, no doubt, yeah. yeah th this is the problem. Like, if something is truly unfalsifiable, there's nothing you can say. So, like, the term debunking doesn't even mean anything to me anymore because it's one thing. We'll do both. We'll try and do both of these things. But number one, you look at the the, the facts and see how it measures up, and you you have answers for their queries. But number two, you've got to understand the psychological underpinning of it, which, like you say, is more. It's more about belonging. It's more about a tribalism and a culture, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely, it was the, the social aspect that I, that I found very interesting uh, in that documentary. And it, it gave me a much better insight into how these guys can be so committed to these beliefs. Because you think, you know, they're so easily disprovable. Uh, how can anyone stick with it? But when you see, like, literally their entire social circle is built up around this, uh, if they were to renounce it, they would become complete outcasts. They'd have no friends. They'd be out suddenly in the real world with no friends, no jobs, living in their mother's basement in their 40s. And, <laughs> you know, maybe it's just it's just far easier to keep going with it, regardless of what, what evidence you find to the contrary. Now, one thing I'd forgotten from the first time I saw it was actually some of them mentioned how they've this, this belief has come to dominate them so much that they've lost touch with, uh, they've fallen out with families and relatives and friends and... I don't know if you know about the, the, the QAnon conspiracy, but that's that's a big part of that, too. You know, it's like this hyper um, far right kind of pro Trump is a genius sort of thing. But like whenever someone goes so far down these things that they lose touch and, and, and it, it starts to affect them socially and their relationships with their families and stuff, you know, there it's almost it's cult like, isn't it? Because one of the things about defining a cult is that they, they try and get you separated from your family and your friends so that you only associate with people who are in the same group, in the same cult. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it, but to be fair, I don't think, I don't think there's any, uh, unlike a cult, there's no central um, mastermind type figure who's deliberately trying to split people away from their friends and family. I think it's just a natural result of believing such wacky things, you know? Yeah, and I agree. There's probably a certain percentage of people, I guess, snap out of it Yeah. Uh, when they realize that the cost in terms of their existing relationships and so on could be quite high. Uh, but I guess the people who tend to end up in it are people who perhaps have less of that to lose in the first instance. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Uh, well, there's, there's the, a good scene in the film where um, Mark Sargent says, you know, yeah, he says he kind of turns that on its head and says, well, those of us who don't have anything to lose are, are willing to speak up, for, you know, to, to see beyond what, it, what we're being told. And therefore, we're more likely to, um, you know, come up with an, a strange idea and, and maybe give it a chance. Whereas someone who's invested in the system is not going to investigate those things. And he says, you know, if you're if you're a schlub, then you've got nothing to lose. You, you'll look into this. But if you're like the mayor of a town or something or you're a policeman or you're somehow invested in the system, you're less likely to do that. And the host says to him, well, aren't you now? the mayor of flat earth so doesn't that you know because you're so invested in this now doesn't that make you unreliable because there's no way you're going to be interpreting evidence uh, uncritically now that you have a vested interest uh, i suppose that is that is true uh you could turn it around like that and they say that they, they can they can 
they can see more clearly because they're outside the system and they're not invested in it. Um, yeah, I suppose that's. A, I mean, of course, the, the conspiracy theory would not persist if they did not have an answer for everything. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about evidence for a moment because there's some. I hope I'm not using any of these terms incorrectly. Please, please call me out if you're more familiar with. But the, there is a particular type of solipsism which is about kind of only like there's like an extreme form of it where like you only accept what you can see and experience yourself personally and you have to question everything beyond that and to some i'm conflicted about this because to some degree science starts out that way doesn't it science says let's not take anything for granted until we've gone and shown it and proven it ourselves but then science goes further and builds on other people's work and at some point you, you end up having to take somebody's word for it don't you because you can't do everything firsthand yourself. You, and in order to advance a theory and advance research, you build on what's gone before. And then these guys are saying, well, no, actually, that's all suspicious because you haven't gone out and done that stuff yourself. And that, this kind of manifests itself as being like, well, I can't get into space. So why should I trust anything beyond what I can see around me? And the world looks flat to me. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's very true. I suppose science, uh, although we might hate to admit it, does require a certain degree of faith and belief itself. Uh, yeah. You have to believe in the method and you have to trust the literature that is there already from people who have apparently followed that method. Yes. And I mean, it but, does, it does, we do get caught out, you know, and, and one of the things about science, which I think makes it different from other belief systems, is that in theory, at least, it is self correcting. And it's not perfect, and people have egos and people have careers to protect. But by and large, bullshit does get caught out eventually. Quite eventually, often. yeah. But, I mean, of course there have been missteps, um, especially when there's a financial motive for someone to maybe skew the results or distort the truth. Obviously, in my line of work, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, some of them would be well known for putting a slant on research and kind yeah. of taking taking advantage of, of uh, certain loopholes and certain weaknesses in the existing uh, methods of uh, research and publication and so on. Uh, so I think a healthy amount of skepticism and cynicism is uh, to be advised, uh, but obviously taken to its extreme, you can end up in pretty strange places. Yeah, I think I, do, I entirely do agree with that. And even... I was only in research for a brief time, but I've, you know, I've seen enough to let me know that, yeah, look, this, these things, there are a lot of problems with it. In, what I do like about it is that, in theory at least, um, you know, there is, there is a potential for these things to get caught and to be, to be unearthed, whereas in, in kind of more heavily belief systems, you know, there's not necessarily anything built into it. It's like, well, a particular book or a particular person has, has the final say. And, and that's that, you know? At least there's the potential yeah. in science for self-correction. That's it. Like if, if you uh, take issue with some accepted theory, uh, you, there's nothing stopping you from going out, doing the research, gathering the evidence uh, to refute it. Yeah, it is interesting. And, if, and then you can get that published in a peer-reviewed journal and it'll become part of the accepted body of knowledge. And, of course, journals have their own accusations of gateway keeping and all that sort of thing. It gets very complicated. And it gets absolutely. complicated, <laughs> it's, the, it's the best we have so far. Yes, yeah, exactly. Exa uh, yeah, that's what, it's a bit like when people say capitalism is the worst system except for all the others. It's kind of like... Yeah, it's 
it's the best we've we've yeah. uh, we've managed and to, to figure out so far. Don't know if I feel that way about capitalism, but I certainly feel that way about science as a tool, as nothing more than a tool. Um, you know, it shouldn't be telling us how to think because it can't. And I think if we apply that to it, we're misunderstanding what it is. It's just a tool that tells us what's up, what's what, and it's up to us what we do with that information. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, science is uh, it's a method, nothing more, nothing less. Now, one of the things I've noticed about Flat Earth, which is not always obvious from the beginning, and, and people who, who are into it will not usually venture uh, offer this up forward and it's not mentioned really anywhere in the documentary so i don't know if you'll agree with this or not but what i've known if you dig deep enough and you find out what this really is all about um i think i genuinely think it's it's a religious thing in the in the flat earth model right if you think about it it goes against most of the laws of of natural science that we understand so it kind of implies that the system we're in is is artificial in some way like it's been created or it has to be maintained because it just doesn't make a lot of sense according to how we understand physics to work or anything else for that matter and therefore it begs the question of well there is some there is some force there is some creator and they tend not to get into this and they tend to leave that as an open question because they like to portray it as being more or less a scientific thing or at least an experimental thing that you can test for yourself and uh, it's like Sometimes they'll say, well, we're not saying who the creator is. You know, it could be aliens, could be like interdimensional beings or some, some unspecified force. But I think, you know, I think we know who they're talking about, whether or not they mention it. Mm. You know? Yeah, there's probably a bit of a, 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 an overlap with the, uh, with the religious uh, enthusiasts, I guess. It's it's buried deep in there, but if you notice, the way they talk about their belief is constantly like, oh, this is really positive, this is really life-affirming. And instead of believing that we're just like these random little spots on a tiny ball that's, you know, insignificant, actually, we're the centre of the universe, we're the centre of the show, it's all about us, and we live in this system which can only have been created, you know, deliberately or artificially. So you know, they're using the language of creationists, even if they don't really acknowledge it. Yeah, I suppose um, you know the, the the current kind of scientific knowledge uh, can be a little bit, uh, uh, I suppose it kind of undermines your sense of uh, humanity's importance in the grand scheme of things, uh, and it, things can seem a little bit um, meaningless. I guess you know people search for that kind of deeper meaning, and it, it can be hard to find that from. You know the, the scientific body of knowledge, which is seems really cold and uncaring. Yeah, and again, science—the purpose of science is not to give you that. It, science has nothing to say on that matter, you know. But that's Absolutely. to me, that's that's no excuse to kind of willfully um, misrepresent science in an effort to give yourself that that comfort or whatever it is that you feel you need from it. It's just—it's very, you know. It's anyway. The, I I do think that is ultimately the psychological underpinning of it but it's not something they mention very often it's just it's for me it's the constant affirmation that oh somehow somehow in an unspecified way flat earth belief is more positive or life-affirming than you know round earth belief well why you know get, give me some details there and i i do think that they're not mentioning it but what they mean is art the artificiality the the planned nature of the the, the flat earth model mm. 
All right. Yeah, it, it would be a nice thought, wouldn't it, if someone had made this all just for us? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've, I've never felt that need myself. I, you know, as, as a biologist, um, as Darwin said, there's grandeur in this view of life of, of seeing everything as an interconnected system. And um, yeah. there's been some interesting articles I've read this week about how a sort of a biblical mindset has, from an early period, you know, well, at least thousands of years ago now, has divorced us from the rest of nature and separated us from, you know, other aspects on the earth. And if we insist on seeing ourselves as special and different, then, yes, we are ultimately going to be disappointed. But if we kind of reframe the way we see things and say, um, well, actually, we're part of a very complicated system, which has all these moving parts, all of which are magnificent and beautiful if you want to see them that way, you know, and, and that goes right back to, you know, whether we see the world as just a bunch of resources for us to use because we have stewardship over over everything, which is something the Bible specifies, or whether it's like, well, actually, we're part of we're part of the deal here. And, and I'm not one to overly glorify sort of kind of pagan worldviews and stuff like that. But we, we at some point, we definitely lost an idea of, you know, every rock and every tree and every animal has its soul and has a place and has a has an energy. And we, we've lost that and we've come to a place where actually we are more important than everything else. And, uh, you know, this is not the whole story, but there's some some of that ideal has fed into the kind of ecological, the eco side, as they're calling it now, that we're, we're definitely going through. So a little bit hippie there, but there you go. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still an ecologist at heart, you know. <laughs> so that's that's part of the story. Let's get into some of the mechanics of Flat Earth and what, what their supposed proofs are and what you make of them as a, let's say, a more engineering minded person um, than myself. Oh, uh, before we do that, I'll just mention that one of the phrases I picked up on in the film that harps on that was some of the flat earthers calling the <clears throat> the scientific model forced sun worship. You know, so this is like, this is definitely them drawing a line in the sand and saying your model is old fashioned and a little bit pagan, whereas ours is more like, no, we're special and created independently. But OK, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one behind. Let's talk about the the more um, technical nuts and bolts stuff. So in, in the Flat Earth model, the sun and the moon are only a few miles across, not that far away from us, not that far above us, and are moving in circles, not in orbits. Yeah, so, I mean, this one is just ridiculously easy to disprove <laughs> uh, with your own eyes. Um, so first off, if, if they're just uh, kind of hovering above this disk-like Earth, and moving in a circle around it, uh, in their model, I think they put the sun and the moon at about latitude, kind of 45 degrees, kind of halfway between the, the center of the disk and the perimeter, Yeah. Um, moving in a circle. So if wherever you are in the disk, the sun and the moon should never set. They would just get further away, but they would never disappear behind the horizon. So they would get and smaller or bigger, would they, as they moved? They would get smaller or bigger, and they'd change position in the sky, but they would how would they set you know because if this earth is flat what are they setting behind yeah uh, and they would change radically in apparent size throughout <laughs> the course of the day uh, and of course what we observe actually with our own eyes uh, subjectively would uh, feel opposite to what the model their model would suggest so in their model what you should see is the sun should appear very far away very small very dim then as the day comes on, it'll get closer to you, appear much bigger and brighter, and then fade away again. 
uh, we actually see the sun and the moon as being bigger when they're close to the horizon and smaller in the middle of the day. Now, that's just a visual illusion because they look bigger when they're close to the horizon because we have foreground objects with which to compare them and give them a sense of depth and distance. Um, but you can easily measure the size of the moon. I suppose the sun, it's a bit harder because you can't really look at it without hurting your eyes. But if you take a full moon night, watch it rise, watch it set, hold out your hand with your thumb up and the full moon will be about the size of your thumbnail. And that will remain true throughout the course of the night. Its apparent size will never change. It's about 0 0.5 degrees as we see it. Is that the only change as a result of this optical illusion? Yeah, so it looks bigger when it's just setting and rising when it's near the horizon. But that's because you get a, a sense of how far away it is then. Whereas when it's up uh, at the zenith, when it's right above you, you've nothing to kind of compare it with and get a sense of distance or scale. Right. Um, so also in the in the flat Earth model, so if if the sun was like we reckon it is, which is a globe, and the light is coming out from it, you know, from all directions, then that you know this day and night system would make no sense because everywhere on the flat Earth would be illuminated all the time, at you know at the yeah. same time, like the, the the supposed northern and southern hemispheres would would have the same day and night system. So they they to get around this, they describe it as more like a lamp or something which has a cone. From which it have you seen this model where like you know only certain parts of the earth are illuminated at a time to explain day and night systems yeah and uh, that also makes no sense because for that to work the sun would basically have to be like a lamp almost um with a lampshade pointing straight down so what you would see in that instance would be as the sun was rising. Well, of course, it doesn't rise because it never actually sets in their system. But as it approaches, it would initially look like an ellipse because you'd be viewing it from an angle. And then as it came close overhead, it would look more like a disc or a circle. And then as it receded away again, it would begin to take on an ellipse because you'd be looking at it from an angle. I'm still trying to wrap my head around like like to them, sunset is the sun just moving further away without going up or down. It's just moving horizontally far away from you. But it looks like a sunset. It looks like it's going down. That's blowing my mind a bit. Yeah, it, it literally makes zero <laughs> sense. Uh, there's, a, there's a very good um, computer animation I saw on YouTube where someone has modeled the flat earth model versus the actual earth as we know it. Uh, and you can set your viewpoint to wherever you want it to be on this flat earth. And the, the sun and the moon just do bizarre things in the sky, do you know? So, like, if you were at a mid-latitude, you would see the sun coming up from the south. So, we'll say at midnight, the sun is directly south, but really far away and small. Then it'll loop up to your east, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it'll be directly overhead, and then it'll recede to the west and kind of go around in an arc again down to the south, but never actually go beneath the horizon. I mean, it couldn't, could it? It just, <laughs> I just, I fail to see how that's... An explanation for no and it, it it makes no sense either in terms of uh we can observe the, the the point the direction in which the earth rises and sets changes throughout the year so at a mid-latitude country like ireland or the uk you will see the sun rise in the northeast in the summer and it'll rise in the southeast in the winter uh, the only thing that can account for that for that is the the 23 degree uh, tilt between the Earth's um, plane of rotation about the sun and the axis of its rotation. Which is what gives us our seasons. 
exactly. Is so that accounted? I, I, how is? I haven't seen any model of the flat Earth uh, that accounts for seasonal variation in the paths of the sun and the planets across the sky. I saw one today where they try. They kind of implied that the sun and the moon, uh, like, have inner and outer circle. I'm not going to call them orbits, but like they they either make smaller or larger circles. Um. At different times of the year, but I, I, I still, it still makes no sense to me. Like, like how do they, how do they change from one to the other? When does it change? You know what? All of these answers provoke more questions than they answer. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that, I, I think that the, the the motion of the kind of celestial bodies is one of the most uh, clear pieces of evidence that we can see with our own eyes. You're not relying on any research that's gone before you. Um, if you only trust your own senses, then you can verify it for yourself by comparing the uh, points of sunrise and sunset in the summer versus the winter. Okay, here's another idea. When I was a kid, I think you did. You have the the old Carl Sagan Cosmos book. Remember, I had that when I was a kid. You probably you probably read it as well. Um, yeah, I remember it. Yeah. And he talks. He had a chapter about Eratosthenes and the, the some of the early classical work on you know figuring out. Uh, the cosmos and he talks about the horizon effect so he says in the book that when ships go over the horizon um, because the earth is curved even from an early time people realised that you, the bottom of the ship would start to disappear first and that this gave them, this tipped them off as one of the clues um, as to why the earth might have been round and, um, and then when flat earth people today talk about this they say oh it's all an optical illusion it's got to do with magnification and refraction and thermal inversions and I guess I was going to ask you what's what's the what's really going on with that is that something you can uh, see for yourself uh, and or is you it you can some... absolutely see it for yourself so in marine navigation um, one of the, uh, the the methods by which you can judge your distance from a lighthouse is by measuring exactly when it first appears above the horizon um, so you will know the height of the light above the water and you know your own height of eye by measuring your height above the water so you account for the height of the ship and then how tall you are and so on and just at the moment that the light appears over the horizon to verify that it has in fact just appeared over the horizon what you do is you sit down and as you sit down the light will disappear because you are just at the cusp oh. of being able to see it over over the curved horizon that's very interesting yeah so you know then um Exactly how far you are from that light, you can work it out mathematically. Is there any truth to the idea that this effect can be this can be affected by, you know, refraction or anything else? Like, does it depend on atmospheric conditions? Can it can it give slightly skewy results sometimes, or is it is it fairly solid? Well, yeah, absolutely. Refraction can interfere with our perception of the horizon. So, like the, the most obvious example that we've probably all seen is that on a very hot day on a, a tarmac road, you can get that strange reflective effect in the distance. I really love that. Uh, I'm fascinated uh, by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where uh, and as things appear over the horizon, uh, you see kind of a double image of them: one upright and one inverted. Um, but I mean, that's uh, easily provable as an atmospheric effect because it changes according to the temperature. Yeah, and you, uh, when you drive up to it, it disappears. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and on a cold day, it's not there. Yes. Um, so like, I, like I mentioned, the, the, the dipping height, as they call it, of a, or the dipping distance of, of a lighthouse, 
Um, if it were due to atmospheric effects, the distance at which it occurs should vary according on the atmospheric conditions. So it should be different depending on pressure, temperature, and so on. So I've read that if, if the Earth were a perfectly flat globe, right, with the circumference it has, um, it, like if the horizon was perfectly flat and you were standing on the ground level and you were about 1.8 metres tall, you should be able to see about 4.8 kilometres would be the horizon. Does that sound about right? Uh, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, it's about three-ish miles. So if you're standing on a beach at sea level um, and you're about six foot tall, the horizon as you see it is about three miles away. So flat earthers often like to have in their videos, they're saying, oh, look at me, I'm standing on this bit of land and just across the bay is is a city. So Mark Sargent does this in the video. He's, um, I think he's somewhere in, Wa in Washington State and he's looking at some cities, probably Seattle or something. And... Um, he says, oh, I shouldn't be able to see that because of the distances involved. Like, is there any is there any reason why, you know, you will sometimes be able to see something that's further further away than you ought to? Yeah, your, 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 your height of eye has a huge effect on how far away your, your horizon is. Um, so in that bit in the documentary, he's actually standing on top of a hill and he's looking over at a city that's comprised of tall buildings. Um, so if he was at sea level and he was trying to see an object at sea level on this city on the other side of the lake, then he would not be able to see it. But, you know, these, these, these buildings are basically sticking up from behind the horizon and thus are plainly visible. That's so simple, isn't it? It's either like incredibly disingenuous of him to say to, to say that this is the problem or you know, the level of self-delusion going on is just unbelievable, isn't it? It really is. Um, they, 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 these logical arguments they use, they, they, they start out with just the barest little knob of logic and just uh, go from there without really kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of it. And they'll discard all sorts of factors that don't uh, work in their favour. Yeah, I'm, I I could be wrong. I, th I feel like my memory of that shot is that he is on a beach, but I, I can't say for sure, so... Um, I you know I'm but sure. even if he was on even if he was on a beach, the fact that he's looking at a city comprised yeah. of tall buildings yeah. completely changes it. And you're always if he could if you could see the shorefront on the opposite side of the lake, then he'd have a point. But yeah. you cannot see the shorefront because it's below the horizon. If the Earth was flat, then how much further would you see than like so? If it's three miles on on a globe of our angle, what how much further would you see if if it was flat? Basically, infinitely far, depending on the atmospheric conditions. Uh, you would only be limited by atmospheric haze. Uh, so, like, if it was totally clear, if the, if the air was completely 100% transparent, you'd be able to see all the way to this supposed rim of mountains around the edge of the disk. Uh, now, of course, in real life, you know, visibility is rarely above 20 or 30 miles um, due to haze and moisture in the atmosphere. Uh, but, in theory, your horizon would be pretty much at infinity. I, I saw... Um, one uh, documentary video on YouTube where they, they worked out how large this disk would have to be in order for light to be bent by the gravity of the Earth such that it would eventually kind of run down and it ends up being trillions of miles uh, <laughs> for, for, for a photon traveling um, parallel to the disk to actually get pulled down by gravity into the disk. Oh. So it's it just it doesn't work out at all. So then, for these guys to say like, "Oh, I've caught you out because you know I can see something that is a few miles further away than the ball theory claims I should be able to see," 
really they should be they, their proof should be far more extraordinary than that, right? They should be able to take their telescope out and, and photograph something hundreds of miles away on the flat. Exactly. In, exactly you know, yes, like so you say, given the right atmospheric conditions, which it might be rare, but yeah. It, it so should... if you got say one person to stand on a beach somewhere in County Wexford and some other fella to stand on a beach in Wales, uh, it is clear enough on certain days to be able to see Wales from Ireland. You can just about see the tops of the mountains over the city. Um, so if it's clear enough atmospherically, then it should be possible to see the other guy standing on the beach if you have a powerful enough telescope. Of course it's not because he's going to be hidden behind the curvature of the Earth. <laughs> So how far away does something have to be before it starts to become hidden? Let's say just like something the height of a person. If we if I just if we were on a flat desert and I walked away from you, how how long before? Uh, okay, that's quite easy to work out. So if you're you're on a totally flat area, so you're on the sea or you're on a, like a salt flat. Okay, so in that instance, if you're six feet tall, um, you I wish see... I was. <laughs> <laughs> you, so in that case, you you can see to three miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, to be able to see the top of some other guy's head, right? So if if you imagine, so you're looking at the map, and you have a little dot to represent the guy, right? And you have a circle to represent his field of vision. Yeah. So it'll be it'll have a radius of three miles. Uh, then if you have another guy further away, and he's got his own three mile disc about him, where those two discs intersect, that'll be the moment at which they can see the tops of each other's heads. Okay. So I can see the horizon three miles away on the flat, yeah? yeah? So I'm looking at one point on the ground three miles away. If there's another guy three miles away further still looking back at me, that is just about the point at which we can both see the same piece of ground and we can just about see the tops of each other's heads. Yeah. So that, on a, on a totally flat piece of land, or see six miles to see another dude, wow. basically, as long as he's six feet tall. Okay. Okay, here's another one. So they they love talking about airplanes because <laughs> because um, obviously the whole flat Earth idea is based on it's it's very practical. It's very solipsian. That's the word. Uh, it, you know, it's all about what you can do yourself and what you can see yourself. And the, the you know the highest most of us get in our lives is when we're in a plane. So they love to say, well, you look out the window and you can't see the curve. So I'm, I'm, my next question is, well, how high do you have to be? to see the curve and how high do airplanes generally go commercial flights how how high do they generally go and to what degree is the size and shape of the window affecting this because we're talking about tiny little curved windows aren't we yeah yeah so the the, the size of the window is actually a huge part of it because when you look out the window you can only see a little segment of the horizon uh, so you can't really appreciate the curvature you can actually begin to just about appreciate the curvature of the Earth at the, the very upper limits of, of where commercial airliners fly. So kind of coming close to 40,000 feet is where you'll just begin to get a little hint of it. Um, but you need a big window to be able to see all of the horizon all at once pretty much, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember as a kid actually flying over to, to London um, and with my smaller kid head pressed up against the window. <laughs> I could definitely see a slight curvature to the horizon and I, I could see it with my own eyes for sure. And you reckon that's because your head was slightly smaller, so you got a slightly better... Because I, <laughs> I literally had my nose up against the, the, the glass, um, which I suppose dignity and self-respect prevents us from doing as adults. I feel like there's scope for a lot of um, subjectivity in kind of analysing that. You know, some people are going to look out yeah, and say, yeah, yeah. I like, can't it, see it, a curve. It's, it, 
Yeah, it's so subtle and so slight that if you were hell-bent on not seeing it, you, you wouldn't see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's... Uh, you have to get you have to get really high before it gets very obvious, you know. Uh, basically, on the you know close to the edge of space, you know. Um, you'd be talking about eighty thousand, hundred thousand feet plus, really, before it becomes very obvious, and very few of us ever get to that kind of altitude. As a, as a former uh, flight simulator enthusiast, um, <laughs> I must ask you: Is there anything to be said for the flat Earth idea that, that where they claim that? Oh, you, you know, because the, the southern hemisphere isn't really a hemisphere, that there are no nonstop flights that go across it. And even though there should be, according to the, the globe model, and they, they like to pull out flight charts and say, oh, look, nobody makes these trips, even though they should be possible, according to your model. Uh, that is just because most of the landmass of the world and most of the large cities are predominantly in the northern hemisphere. Um, that's all there is to it, really. Like, if you fly south from New Zealand or Australia, uh, where are you going to go to, realistically? Antarctica. And, yeah, and, so and there's, we generally don't fly over Antarctica, do we, for practical reasons? No, but uh, there's plenty of flights that uh, fly over the Arctic. You know, if you're flying from uh, from Russia to the United States, it'll be straight over the North Pole. You go. Well, flat earthers don't have a problem with that because I mean they see the North Pole as, in, yeah. as being effectively like it is. In fact, that's the part of the Earth. That's most like our model, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, it, it's it's purely a commercial decision. You know, flights aren't going to fly where there isn't a need for them, or there's not money to be made for them. So, but they, uh, I mean, so is it the case that like literally nobody does this, or it's just fairly rare? I mean, but people do or have done it. Oh, it has been done, of course. Yeah, um, but it, it, it's really a range issue. So, like. Uh, you'd have to fly an awful long way before you'd get anywhere useful if you flew around the southern hemisphere. So let's say you started from uh, New Zealand. Um, the only place you'd be looking at flying to practically would be the southern tip of South America. Um, but that's a very sparsely populated place, and I don't know if there's much by way of international airports there. Right, okay. So it's kind of practical reasons. That's right. And New Zealand has a population the same as Ireland, four and a half million. Right. Um, so you're not going to have a big wide body long distance airliner uh, filled uh, with enough people to make it worth your while to fly all that distance and the other thing is um, moving on to kind of an aviation point of view most long distance flights are now done in twin engine planes okay and that was when it was first introduced uh, there was a bit of pushback within the aviation community about the safety aspect so if you've got a four engine plane and you lose an engine you still got three quarters of your thrust if you're on a two-engine plane, you lose one engine, you're down to 50%. Um, so it was only with the increasing reliability of jet engines that this was kind of accepted um, to be flying long-distance transoceanic routes in a plane with only two engines, like a Boeing 777. Uh, the, the, the protocol uh, that they used is called ETOPS, Extended Twin Engine Operations. And under the ETOPS protocol, you must always be, I think, off the top of my head now, it might be totally accurate, but I think you must always be within, it's either three or four hours of a diversion airport. So you'll see their routes that they will, if they're going across the ocean, they might necessarily follow the shortest route. They'll have to fly in such a, a way that they're always within three or four hours of a, a suitable diversion airport. If you fly across the Antarctic, you're not going to have an, a suitable diversion airport within range. So that's another big reason that they don't fly that direction. Ooh, I am absolutely getting the feeling that you are entirely the person 
to have on maybe to do an episode in the future about the uh, the Malaysian Airlines MH370 conspiracy. Oh yeah, that'd be juicy. Yeah. It's it's an absolutely mad story, and uh, I met a fellow at work recently who is completely on board with like all oh, the Americans like stole the plane and took it away to the secret island because there were you know Chinese businessmen on board who who had like weapons plans and there's absolutely mad stuff for that when it's all all the nuts and bolts of the case are all about air airplane protocol you know I think I think you'd be really into it <laughs> yeah no, that'd be good one, yeah. yeah oh um I want to ask you about um GPS and, and airplanes because Again, this is such an all-encompassing conspiracy theory. Like, you have to... Like, if the Earth... If the Southern Hemisphere isn't the Southern Hemisphere, it's the exterior of a disk, and planes fly this all the time, even if they supposedly don't go over the Antarctic. Um, so, so they say that, well, all GPS is, like, doctored to pretend like you're going around the hemisphere when, in fact, you're just going around the outside of the disk. And and they differ on whether or not like pilots are in on this. So like so you know, either you believe well every single pilot and every single NASA person is in on this conspiracy, or only the top muckety mucks know, and the pilots are being fooled along with the rest of us. Uh, you know, but like airplanes existed before electronic GPS. Like, uh, uh, is there anything? <laughs> Can you add anything to this? Is it just mad? Uh, well. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, you, you can't uh, you can't really disprove their theories with uh, evidence that they cannot verify with their own senses because they'll just say that it's doctored or falsified or whatever. Um, yeah. So, like in their worldview, it could be that all the pilots are in on it because that's totally believable in their warped worldview where everyone is in on everything all the time and out to fool everybody else. Um, <laughs> So I, you know, I, I wouldn't get bogged down in that because you could just end up going to a bizarre cul-de-sac, really. Yeah, it is. There are places where there's just there's nowhere to shine a light, is there? Like you get to a, you get to it's like it's like you're up against a wall where no matter what you say, the answer is always oh, but that's part of the conspiracy. Yeah, so like I, I think really the, the best way to disprove it is with just simple, objective, observable stuff like the motions of the celestial bodies and the distance to the horizon and the, the distance at which objects become visible, stuff yeah. like that. I think that it, it's undeniable and it's, it's plain and it's obvious. I am I am interested in the the extremes of the of the world building, if you want to call it that, that they have to go yeah. to. You know, like isn't it astonishing to imagine that they live in a world where yes, maybe all the pilots are in on this and. It goes further than that. They have this whole alternative history of the 20th century where in the 1940s and 50s, you know, the U.S. sends up rockets and discovers the firmament, as they call it, which incidentally is a word taken from um, biblical, old fashioned biblical cosmology. I don't think that's a coincidence myself. Um, And then NASA is formed, you know, just after this in order to hush up this big secret. And that's why they invent the Van Allen belts as an idea, so they can't send anyone into space. And then, you know, the, oh, the 1961 Antarctic Treaty between all the nations. Oh, that's, you know, they think that's really suspicious. Why do all the nations get together? You know, they can't agree on anything else, but they've agreed to keep everybody out of Antarctica. If they discovered oil in Antarctica, I'd say that. Uh, <laughs> that, would, that treaty could be, yeah. could be put to the test. Oh, that's, that's very true. Um, I mean, it's it's yeah, like the only, the only reason they they agree on it is because there's nothing useful down there, really. You know, so yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, makes there's them, no real conflict. Makes them look good, but they're not actually sacrificing anything. Exactly. Um, do you? Um, uh, oh, I like some of this stuff. 
blows my mind because of how simple it should be to rectify. You know, like in their worldview, nobody has ever actually seen, nobody outside the conspiracy has ever been to the, the ice wall. So like, it doesn't seem like it would cost you a bunch of money, but you know, it wouldn't be that hard to just get some true believers on a boat and just go, on a, go on a straight like, line. Go on a straight Absolutely. line. And, and so when you look at the money they spent on, on that uh, laser gyroscope, I think it was $30,000, $30,000 would buy you a very nice boat. Um, do you know? Yeah. Uh, just get yourself a nice sailing boat, point it south, off you go. Yeah, and um, just, just take some pictures. And, very and, doable. You know, like it, it, like their worldview seems really easily falsifiable, you know? Like the Earth is yeah, not... I, 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 I wonder if deep down many of them don't want to do that because they yeah. know what they'll find. That's the, end, that's the end game then, like... Yeah. But of course, the other thing is, if you did uh, sail south from from South America or whatever, you will eventually get to Antarctica. And as you approach it, it will look a bit like a big wall of ice because <laughs> Antarctica is full of glaciers and mountains and other tall, icy things. Yeah. So if you interpret um, it so that way, it, it reinforces your... Yeah. You'd actually have to get them to sail around Antarctica. Yeah. Um, okay. I suppose. Which, which is doable. Um, so, the, I mean, the, 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 the around the world yacht races, that's the way they go. They go around Antarctica. Huh. And um, they they try and sail as far south as they can get away with it without, without running into ice, because obviously the further south you go, the shorter your route is, because you're taking a, a smaller circle around the, the South Pole. Um, so it's doable, absolutely, but none of them will ever do it. Because there is there is a fellow who has put money into some sort of personal rocket thing. Have you heard about this? And he's had some failures. He hasn't, but his his idea is if well, if I if I can get myself high enough to take some pictures, that will prove it. You know. Uh, yeah, that, that is doable, and it is uh, it is within the scope of amateur rocketry to, <laughs> to, to to get a rocket high enough for the the curvature of the Earth to be to be visible. So I actually I actually wish that fellow some luck. Uh, he's had some failures and he's lost a lot of money in it, but um, at least he's yeah, sort of just blame it on you know fisheye distortion from the camera. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it's like well, you think you of all people would not send up a fisheye camera, <laughs> fisheye lens. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. um, okay, so let's, I, I've annoyed you enough with the, the fringe world building. Um, let's get back to the nuts and bolts stuff. I have one final um, story to tell, I think, which is, have you heard of the Bedford level experiment? No, I have not. So this is interesting. This is like go out and do it yourself type stuff. So there was a fellow in the 19th century in England called Robotham, Ro, Ro, Samuel Robotham, and he was a weird guy. He like owned a commune. Um, a sort of a pseudo-socialist commune. This was like, you know, early to mid-19th century when guys were setting up their own, like, utopian civilizations everywhere. Really interesting stuff. But he got into flat-earthism, uh, you know, and this was extremely fringe even then. You know, this, again, like I said, like, everybody in the establishment knew this was nonsense and this guy was a throwback for sure. <clears throat> but he found a place in Cambridgeshire called the Bedford Level. It's a place where there's a canal that goes for about six miles on, you know, as close to flat sea level as you can get. And he said, well, I'm going to test this. And he came up with a reasonable situation where he said, if I stand, you know, on this bank with my telescope and a boat, I set, I set another fellow off in a boat, uh, I'll keep looking at him. And according to your mathematics, you know, he should disappear after a certain time. Uh, and and I reckon I'll see him for longer than that. And he got some details and pictures and stuff, which he reckoned uh, proved him correct. And later on, his idea was taken up by um, a follower of his whose name escapes me, but he was challenged by none other than Alfred Russell Wallace. 
you know the uh, who's uh, he actually lives he lived in a town near where I am in Gray in um, in Essex at the time, and um, our, our Wallace of course was you know the fellow who alongside Darwin came up with a, a version of of natural selection and is a huge hero of mine actually. He was into, he did some really great stuff for science. He was also into spiritualism and other weird things, but he stood up to these flat earth guys and uh, there was a bet there was a wager for like you know 500 pounds or something which would have been a huge amount of money at the time and um, it turned into a huge hoo-ha a huge row about interpretation of the evidence because uh, Wallace came along and adjusted for um, what he saw as refraction and said no actually what uh, you're looking at isn't doesn't disprove this and um he never got his money and the other fellow eventually went to jail it turned into a bit of a minor controversy but what I've read is that, uh, you can tell me more about this, is it true that because of uh, refraction you will sometimes be able to see, or your line of sight can sometimes be slightly curved, which means that you are in fact sometimes able to see things that are over the hill as it were? Yeah, 100%. So like, if the atmospheric conditions are just right, the, the air can act as a lens and, and bend light. Um, but again, like I said, the extent to which this occurs varies depending on the atmospheric conditions. So there's some cool pictures floating around on the internet um, of a photo taken across one of the Great Lakes in the, in the States of uh, you know, cities that are very distant from, from one another. I think it's Toronto and maybe Chicago. Someone might correct me there if I'm wrong on the, on the geography. Uh, anyway, they're, they're such a distance apart that they'd never normally, you'd never normally see one from the other. Um, but there, there was a temperature inversion and things were just right that you could see this bizarre mirage-like uh, apparition of the opposite city floating above the horizon and within the apparition all the images were inverted. So it was this floating city oh, of upside-down skyscrapers. Fantastic. Sky. Yeah, so uh, it can happen, of course, um, but the, the key to it really and... Uh, the reason that it doesn't lend any uh, proof to the, the flat earth uh, worldview is that it varies depending on the atmospheric conditions. Yeah, so it's inconsistent. It's inconsistent. So if uh, <clears throat> if it was due to the the topography of the earth, then it should be always the case. It shouldn't vary depending on what the atmosphere is doing. There's a lot of great kind of folklore from around the world about, you know, mystery cities that appear and disappear, you know, off the coast. There's one... High Brassel is the name of a mythical city that appears off the west coast of Ireland, and I know I wonder if some of these come from, you know, mirages of some sort. Uh, almost definitely. I mean, almost definitely, I would say. I'm not saying that they're talking about seeing New York across the Atlantic, but <laughs> no, no, but seeing a city across a lake or, or from a boat from a distance, uh, which you wouldn't normally be able to see it, and with these atmospheric uh, phenomenon. The, the image that you see will often be very highly distorted and kind of uh, uh, alien-like in its appearance, which obviously lends itself to the, the creation of uh, mythology. Well, uh, that is all of the points I wanted to, to hit on, really. Do you have anything else you'd like to add, or did you come across anything uh, kind of gobsmacking or, or, or sensational that you wanted to, to mention when you were doing some reading? Uh, not really. I think we've we've touched on the most of it there. But uh, I suppose yeah, my, my interest with this really would be just the 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 the, the objective evidence that you can see with your own eyes, um, and to always remember to account for kind of certain confounding factors. So these these uh, these line of sight uh, calculations and uh, proofs that are put forward by the flat earthers almost always fail to account for the height of eye and the height of the object you're looking at. So at sea level, you can see. 
the surface three miles away. If something is any way above the surface, you can see it much further away still. Of course. James, thank you yeah. very much for being on the show. Perhaps we'll get thinking about um, a Malaysian Airlines episode if you're interested in that. I think we could get some, some meaty material out of it. But um, until yeah, then... Absolutely. Until then, have a a fantastic summer. You've been listening to a distinctly global episode of Wide Atlantic Weird. If you like the show and want to keep the lights on in the cabin... Give me a review and a rating wherever you listen and share episodes on social media with anyone who you think might be interested. Come on, we know you're out there, so get with the reviews. Hey, if you say anything weird or funny or enlightening, we'll read them out too. If you say something rude, well, maybe not so much. Speaking of rude, you can chat with us on Twitter where we're at Strange Ireland. So do send on any weird personal encounters you may have had or weird beliefs that you may have too. We promise not to make fun of them. Should you have been inspired to try out any of the Flat Earth experiments we mentioned in this episode, we'd also be delighted to hear about that, even if the results didn't quite go the way you'd hoped. We're ready to believe you, and thanks for listening.